0: Do you ever wonder how people perceive you? Do you wish you could take an anonymous survey to see what people really think about you? Today's guest did just that. During today's meal, Dr. Shelby Dorsey and I discuss her self-concept project, Learning from Failures, and the start of AI and behavior analysis, which reminds me of today's Behavior bite The start of my love of cooking. I remember being about seven years old, coincidentally, around the time we got the internet at my house and wanting to experiment with making food. I wasn't allowed to use the stove or oven, but I had free access to combine ingredients and use the microwave. It was certainly messy and most likely disgusting, but I remember one good dish I made, which was chopped apples, microwaved, Then I added sugar, cinnamon, peanut butter, ice cream, and potato chips. I was happy that I was able to explore and test the boundaries. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. She's someone who, when I asked for a bio, she provided me with a laundry list of descriptors, and I could not relate more. I mean, who really knows how to write a bio? She's a director, a consultant, a mentor, a real estate investor, a wife, a mother, a late-diagnosed autistic, and the owner of the SD store. It's Shelby Dorsey. Hi, Shelby. Hello, Rosie. How are you? I'm
1: good. How are you? I'm really great because I've been super excited to be on the podcast. So when you ask me, I've been like pumped up ever since.
0: Yay. That's so exciting. Well, we are very happy to have you. As always, I like to start with an amuse-bouche. So today's Chef's Whim, what is your favorite thing you ate or drank today? So I
1: did have a very good honey crisp apple and that they are my favorite apples and probably the only apples that I eat. And so I had a great one of those and, um, milk chocolate Adkins protein shake. They're my jam. I drink several a day, <laughs> uh, because I'm a picky eater. And so mm. I of course had that. And then my lovely apple. So those are my two favorite things I had today.
0: Nice. So you're a selective eater.
1: Very selective.
0: (laughs) So apples, why are there so many different types of apples? That's what I want to know.
1: Everyone in my family has a degree in agriculture, except for me, both siblings and both parents. So, a lot of the apple flavors are just like for fun, like they're, they're for flavors, <laughs> they're bread for flavors and for consumption. Um, but what I really am picky about, if I, there's any picky eaters listening, is that like the texture. Of mm. apples really get me, like a red delicious apple that they give you in the lunchroom. It has a real mealy texture.
0: Mm-hmm, you can't mm-hmm. do it.
1: Some of them have thicker skins, like a Granny Smith is like um, a little more solid. And so a Honeycrisp, they're always like the most expensive, but they have really gotten the texture and the like sweet and tangy down. If you haven't eaten a Honeycrisp apple, they're delicious. <laughs> Highly recommend 10 out of 10.
0: I'm laughing over here because I'm also very picky with my apples for pretty much the same reason. Yeah. Honeycrisp is, is definitely one of the best. So let's jump into our appetizers. As always, the first appetizer is how did you get into behavior analysis?
1: So I have like a short version and a long version, and I'm going to give you like a middle road because I think that I haven't given a middle road answer on a podcast before. And that kind of helps is that, um, I got pregnant when I was in high school and, um, my mom was a special education teacher and she was not very happy with me. And we live in like rural Texas. She was the mm-hmm. special education director. And so she, when I found out I was pregnant, she pulled me from my classes and I sat in a room by myself in the resource room. And did all my work. And I finished like a full semester's worth of work in like a couple of weeks. So then I just had time to kill because I couldn't leave yet. And I ended up graduating in December, a semester before my peers. That point of time in my life was one of the most traumatic and difficult experiences. And I kind of coped by helping the students. Mm -hmm. So academics have always been somewhat of a favorite activity. Like I love to learn. I love to read. The academic part of school hasn't been an issue for me. And being in that special education classroom, I really got to see like, hey, I'm good at teaching. And I kind of made fun of my My family, because I'm like fifth generation teacher, whatnot. So I went into special education, and I I wasn't a good teacher. Um, And I actually listened to the podcast with Dr. Mariserta earlier today, and she kind of had we kind of have similar stories where I wanted to advocate for the kids, I wanted to really be there. And did you do you have the same story too? Were you in special education?
0: Uh, I wasn't in special ed, but I was going to be a history teacher and same kind of thing up against, you know, uh, there's a lot of politics and there's a yeah. lot of
1: politics. And now I know that because I've autism, some of the things that I got written up in the reports about, I'm like, that was autism y'all. I couldn't help it. And some of the things I just wasn't good at. So, um, I went to get my degree in school counseling and fell in love with counseling. And then when I was doing my internship in counseling, I was too impatient for the results. Like I wanted objective results. And my through my whole internship, it felt like we never really got anywhere with who we were working with. And so I decided like, no, I'm not going to do counseling. I'm going to stick to SPED. And I applied for a PhD program. And so when I got in the PhD program, I went to the University of Oklahoma and they were having horrible pass rate and test scores. And so I don't know exactly the intricacies behind it, but eventually they told the doc students if you guys take the ABA coursework as your electives, you'll have an emphasis in ABA. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And the chair of the department said, well, you'll either be the TA or you'll be in the class. So either way, you're going to get the information. Like those are your Mm -hmm. two options. And I was like, are they free? She said yes. And I was a poor single mother. So I'm like, sign Mm -hmm. me up for the free class. On day one, it was like all of my knowledge from like when I was 15 until that day, like all of a sudden it was like a magnetic, like shaping. Oh my gosh. you know, operate conditioning. Like I get it. I, this all makes sense. And it at the time really helped me like get my life together. Cause I was just rough life between having my daughter in high school and getting to the PhD program. Like there was a really rough spot. And so once I learned behavior analysis and it started working, I'm like enroll in ABA one, in two, in three, you know, Mm -hmm, getting all mm -hmm. of this. And, um, it was very serendipitous, but I hate to say that I started behavior analysis in 2016 or or 15 when I took the course, because Mm -hmm. the course made me realize that what I had been doing for years before was behavior analysis and mm-hmm. i only briefly knew of bf skinner and behaviorism and i knew that i i leaned that way as a clinical counselor but this kind of really brought it together so i feel like i've been into aba for my whole life knowing mm-hmm. what works for me and what doesn't but very very uh formally i got into it because it was a free class <laughs> <laughs> and i fell in love i was like yep this is what i'm going to do
0: I love it. I love those stories. I've said this in the podcast before. I feel like the majority of people that I've talked to um, in behavior analysis fell into it. Like it was almost like an accident or that it found them. But then the second part that really gets me is that you feel like you've been doing it your whole life. And that's something that I commonly say too of like, oh, I was trying to understand behaviors when I was like three or four. (laughs) Like, why is this this peer doing this? There has to be a reason. There has to be some kind of motivation. And I remember my parents being like, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're just being a jerk. And I'm like, no, there's something else going on. There's a bigger reason. Um, And I was trying to figure out what the MO was. What was the establishing operation? You know, all of that. Even for myself, figuring out my own MO
1: that was something that was hard for me because I have ADHD and autism and what's really unique. And I'm, I want to say it here because I I haven't said it before. and, And this is important to me, but I contracted spinal meningitis when I was born and I was in the NICU and the doctors told my parents that I would likely be MR, which was the term they used at the time. And I had to go to these clinics when I was like, one, two, three, I would go to these child welfare clinics where they just like did like your, your regular, you know, jump on one foot. Can you say your ABCs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was born in 1990 and 91. I went in 92. I went in 93. I went and in 93, um, they asked me, you know, to jump on one foot. And I said, I can, but I won't. (laughs) And then they asked me like where my wrist was. And I said, I don't know where my wrist is, but I do know about Abdullah Ablamgada. And like all of this, like I had classic, like little professor speech. Mm -hmm. And so in 93, they say like, she's fine, whatever, come back next year. Well, in 94, the DSM-5 autism write-up as we know now, which it's been changed some, but basically Mm -hmm. the, the format that it is now came from 1994 and my doctor told my parents, don't take her back. Like, she's fine. She's smart. She's fine. She's got no delays. And so 94, they began doing the autism checklist at these child checks, and I was not in attendance. And so that was a really big moment when I figured that out because I really thought I had autism. And I just had nothing to go off of. Right. No, I, I just didn't have anything. So that was, that's really important to, to my story to know that I was checked as a child and missed. And because of our age group, I mean, we're kind of the same age, like Mm -hmm. there are lots of women in their thirties right now getting a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I just think every time I hear somebody's story, I'm like, are you one of the ones that didn't go in 94 (laughs) or like in 94, (laughs) did they not have the checklist? Because there's a huge population of us that got Mm -hmm. missed. Just really sticks out in my mind, and so to be honest, I don't even know where this question started, (laughs) but that part's really important to me.
0: (laughs) No, I love it, I love it. The question was how you got into behavior analysis, but I think that's um, I I do think that's a really important non tangent, yes, um, because it's true. Because I've had so many late diagnosed autistic women on this podcast, and it's literally like 30. Plus, like if you are 30 and above and you're friends with me, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. We kind of congregate. Neurodivergent people need other neurodivergent people. Yes. So I like that added history lesson because I also do like history. That history lesson Mm -hmm. of you went to the clinic for three years and it was literally the next year is when potentially you could have been diagnosed. And it just shows like... (sighs) you know, the whole medical field and how Mm -hmm. so many just humans get missed or kind of Mm -hmm. like lost in the sauce with it. Um, But then especially women, because even if you did go in 94, would have it even been picked up as a a young woman or young, you're a child. Yeah. Young girl. I see
1: this in my practice too, is that my behaviors as a child were, you know, like I was obsessed with horses, I always have like a kick that I'm on, like I'm on something and I'm I'm obsessed with it. And that's the thing. And, um, my mom would tell me if you had one sock crooked, you'd have a total meltdown. We have to fix your sock. You couldn't do it. And as an adult, I'm like, you don't think I have autism. And at, this is the beginning before I was officially diagnosed. And she's like, no, you were just, and then it was kind of like, Quirky. What were you? You know, because I was kind of, you know, I was bossy, I was loud, I talked way too much. I'm all over the place. In the context of neurotypical people, I'm a know-it-all. In the context mm-hmm. of neurodivergent people, I'm just highly s- specific in my niche like mm-hmm. what I like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there there are just so many things and so if you do have a lot of, you know, women listening who are like maybe I have autism, I highly recommend you to go look at your your child um like photo albums and notice yourself in the picture with other kids. No, you know, ask your parents or or your guardians or your siblings, like, can you describe me as a child? Because that was one of the things that I did that I do love about behavior analysis. Um, and one of the things that's kept me here is I love the way that we do definitions. I love having Really, really clear and concise definitions because I need definitions. I I don't mm-hmm. have an inference meter, and so getting into behavior analysis and then sticking in behavior analysis, it was like all of these pieces came together and helped me understand me. And then the more I understood me, the more I could help in programming, in parent mm-hmm. training, mm-hmm. in teaching, and learn you know all of that. So I feel like it really came together once I committed to behavior analysis, and then you know, my diagnoses came later. I was already a BCBA for three plus years before I was even diagnosed mm-hmm. with ADHD. It was a long road, but I, it fits together so effortlessly. Like when I think about how it went.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like I've known you for three or four years and I remember the whole, how it rolled out Yeah, like, it was just Shelby. And then you're like, oh, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And then the whole, like, JK it's really well it's both but like also I got diagnosed with autism
1: and for anybody listening like one of the things that I feel like psychologists don't really talk about a lot and I don't hear much in our field but having ADHD and autism is a weird mix because we know through research that they're they're close uh they're all in the spectrum spectrum of things and so with my ADHD medicine I picked up all of these things. Like I felt like myself for the first time Mm, with mm -hmm. ADHD medicine. And as soon as I felt like myself, everyone else was like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Wait, what? And I was like, no, this has been me the whole time. My ADHD just made me so chaotic in my own brain that Mm -hmm. I couldn't get it out. Um, and so it was actually getting on ADHD medicine that made it more clear of what was autism. Because I'm branded lazy, I'm branded hard headed. I've been, you know, obnoxious, mm-hmm. annoying, all of those things, and they they weren't really me. Like by definition, right. I don't believe I'm any of those things, and half of them I don't even believe really exist. And so it was just a really nice way to like have some self acceptance. And I feel like behavior analysis helped me separate those behaviors and not get hung on. Everybody said I'm annoying. It's like, well, what is annoying talking about your interest at the dinner table, you know, and overpowering the conversation that could be annoying. It's not Mm -hmm. me. It's that I'm not getting the symbol. And so that's just something that whenever I have a chance to talk with women who are getting diagnosed or just diagnosed. I love to prompt them to think back and then, and then think of their behaviors, not necessarily the titles other people have given them or the adjectives that they've used to describe them.
0: Right. That's really good. And it kind of sparked my memory uh, of a project that you took on a few months ago where you asked, you like crowd crowd sourced other people to describe you. Um, so could you talk about that? Is Are you still doing that? Or are you now kind of in the analysis phase?
1: So I'm definitely in the analysis phase, but it is still open. And I, I am keeping it open because I do have like this podcast and then some conferences that are coming up. So I want to leave it open for, for the stragglers that may come in later. Um, but it's so interesting. Uh, I can't describe myself. I don't know what I'm like. When I leave a social situation, I usually ask my husband, describe what I seemed like or what did they think of me? Because I've never been able to to gather people's first impressions of me. And I don't really think of other people's opinions, which is a really, really nice uh, way that my brain works. So I don't have those kind of intrusive thoughts like, do I look fat? Do they like me? Do they think I'm funny? When I'm interacting with people, that part of my brain is kind of shut off. And then when I'm by myself, I can't recall. So the, the research project was basically to send out to my family, friends, Facebook, Instagram, whoever knows me from the SD store and just say on whatever level, you know, me, you know, describe me in these ways. And, and I even had one that said like, would you consider Shelby friendly and the choices were um very friendly friendly not so friendly and really really interestingly there were a couple of people who said I wasn't so friendly and I thought like ah oh, I wish I knew where I knew them from mm-hmm. because I can definitely see how you wouldn't think that I'm friendly if you meet me somewhere where like I'm not really paying attention or I'm overwhelmed or I'm like, moving fast um I kind of have a, what did it, what it, you guys call it? um Like an autism face?
0: Yeah. Madi calls it a, a resting Audi face.
1: Yes. So like, that's my face. Like I seem smiley right now, but in real life, I'm not mm-hmm. only when I'm engaging one-on-one. So the results of that were amazing. People used words that I hadn't thought of. One of the words that was my absolute favorite was cheeky. <laughs> and I actually went to the dictionary to look up, like, I want to know the real definition of cheeky. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I'm like, yes, that is me. And so the whole point of doing this, like I called it like a self-concept case study is that I started realizing when I was working with ACT and some teen clients that ACT was asking us about self-concept and, they, and it is asking us to envision ourselves doing things And, um, I don't have, um, the ability to visualize in my head. Like if you say apple, I don't picture an apple. Um, Mm -hmm. if you said like, imagine this wall blue, my brain doesn't, I can't Mm -hmm. picture something I haven't seen. And so when I was asked about self-concept and I'm like talking with my clients, I couldn't answer some of the questions either. Like, I think I'm super funny. I don't know if anybody else does, you know, things like that. And so. It's really started from like, let me understand where I'm coming from first, and maybe I can figure out some key pieces of why self-concept seems to be particularly difficult for people with autism. Like we historically find it difficult to just engage with self-concept and know how the, the social world perceives us and receives us and all of that. So I got some really great answers. And um, if you're listening to this, you should go to my Instagram and in my link in my bio, uh, if you scroll down, it's still there. And I think it's called Shelby Self-Concept Survey. Uh, It's the only survey on there. And so even if you've just heard me today in this one interview and you don't know what I look like and you have no idea, uh, still fill it out. Because what I'm also realizing is the more people know me, And the more that they know I have autism, the more favorable I am. And there's actually Mm. research backing this is that autistic people who disclose that they have autism in the workplace are given accommodations. They're more likely to be rated as friendly or outgoing by their neurotypical peers. And there's some really great emerging research about when people know that you have it, they can kind of adjust their social expectations and that might make some people uncomfortable. But for me, it's kind of like any other disability. When you know someone is deaf, blind, in a wheelchair, something before you meet them, you can accommodate them. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I feel. Like I feel like people knowing that I have autism, they can accommodate me better. And the self-concept survey is to help me understand at what point do people get there? you know, how much is too much. Uh, And it's been really interesting. So I don't know if I'll publish it, like publish, publish, but I'll definitely keep talking about it informally and anecdotally um, because it's, it's just been fascinating.
0: I think it is. You've shared a little bit on your Instagram and it's always interesting to read because especially when there's, you know, the blanket of people being able to submit anonymously, then the gloves are off. They could say whatever they want. That's a little scary to me, but.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I don't feel a lot of social pressure. The pressure that I feel is typically from myself. And so reading it without names felt a little bit more free. And I could be like, Mm -hmm. someone out there thinks that I was unfriendly. Mm -hmm. And to me, that shows me that I need to make sure that I'm being friendly in every interaction. Because one person thinking I'm not friendly is too much for me. Now, Mm -hmm. other people might say, I don't care if people think they're unfriendly, but because I value um, like collaboration and connection with people, friendly is something that I want neurotypical people to say about me. Right. And so that's, that's like kind of nuanced, but it it was a really cool little project
0: and I hope to continue it in some deeper ways. We will also put the link to that survey in the show notes and then also on my website, if you happen to be listening and then you take the survey, there's a,
1: there's a little box where you can like write stuff. You can write, um, that you heard me here. If you've ne- if you don't know anything about me, you can, you know, just from this one interview that also helps me, um, understand how I come across. Cause you're not seeing my face. You're just hearing my voice and my story yeah, and your so, body language or anything. Right. Yeah. And I'm a big hand mover, like Rosie, you can see me, but I'm a big <laughs> hand mover and I usually, wear like a lot of jewelry and some glasses and headscarves. And so I think sometimes that overwhelms people a little bit. (laughs) So if you're just hearing my voice, it would be great to know your thoughts as I keep studying like self as a concept.
0: Now we are at our palette cleanser course. And so we already talked a little bit about food and the fact that you tend to drink this uh, milk chocolate Atkins protein drink, no advertisement, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, they don't pay me. So don't buy it just because of that. (laughs) So I wanted to ask, do you tend to eat the same meals or would you rather have different meals every day?
1: So I tend to eat the same meals and not only the same meals, but I will go so far as eating the same thing three times a day, every day until the food is burnt out. So trail mix is something that I didn't just always love, but I do like nuts and I do like M&Ms. So, okay, trail mix isn't that hard. And so I started making a very sweet version of trail mix and just kind of shaping myself by putting like, I'm adding walnuts and I'm adding cranberries and I'm adding things. And so I make like a big pot of trail mix. And then I eat that for days. One time I was on a, a taco kick. I ate tacos all the time, every day. And one day my husband came in and was like, I- I'm sorry, I can't do it again. I cannot eat tacos again. And I, we didn't have tacos for like four years. I mean, this is like I'm an extreme person. So when we don't have something, we don't have it. But it is a struggle because I am a mom, and I have a husband who is a, a big eater, and so um, I'm always looking for meals to cook my family. But because I'm, I'm picky and a bit rigid, it seems like no family is going to eat trail mix for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like <laughs> even though I figured out that it is like the healthiest meal that. My family consumes. So we do no salt, all this. Like it's super healthy, mm-hmm. but we can't do that. Once it's done though, like I will be mid bite and be like, uh, mm-hmm. spit it out. And then whatever it seems like I make next, it's like, okay, PB and J's it is. And yeah. then waffles, you know, and when my kids aren't home, I straight up only eat my food. When, mm-hmm. when everybody's home and it's a big family thing, I can... um go outside of my palate and it also helps to be out and about which I think is important for any clinicians listening. I don't love food expansion programs but the environment is a huge factor in everything we do. so um, eating different foods at home kind of stresses me out eating different mm-hmm. foods at a conference with Rosie eats at a di- like <laughs> that's cool. I will eat a pistachio donut, I will eat sushi, I will eat, you know, whatever it's, I'm not picky in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just the rigidity, I think, and the Mm -hmm. doing the same thing over and
0: over. Yeah. Like feeling comfortable when you're at home. Yeah.
1: And I work from home. So I'm like a well-oiled machine when I'm at home, working at home on the computer with my meals, it's like, I feel the best version of me. And so if you're a clinician and you have a a child that you want to expand, think about, will they do it if they are in another place? Are they willing to eat something else at grandma's house, at the restaurant, at whatever? And, And that might be a place that you go because the atmosphere is reinforcing as well.
0: That's a really good point. I'm having like flashbacks to having conversations with parents and the same, well, you know, they eat that at school. Why don't they eat it here? So now I'll be like, well... I was speaking to another autistic person. (laughs) Bingo. Yes.
1: And I have to say, this is not a tangent. It's just a quick thing is that when I was diagnosed with autism, they asked me like, do I want an official diagnosis? Because it doesn't really do anything. If you're, if you're 33, I'm on ADHD medicine. There's no medical, I'm not on any medical intervention for autism. Do you even want it listed on your medical record? Because there are some disadvantages to having it. Um, There are some travel restrictions and visa restrictions for autistic people traveling to other countries, especially countries that have universal health care. American people will go to places with universal health care so that they can get treated. And so there is some discrimination in other countries. So that's something that, you know, you, you need to think about if you're, if you're seeking a diagnosis. But one of the reasons that I was like, no, I want it on paper is because I feel like it gives my lived experience some weight that before I had an official diagnosis, it's like, okay, you're just some chick who only eats waffles. hmm that's just strange. It's not autism. And then getting the diagnosis, I'm able to use it and and share with people like you and anybody that's listening that can say, as a person with a lived experience, Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z might be helpful for this person. And even if I'm not always right, the ballpark and the, the ability to connect things for other people has been really fulfilling to me. Mm. I feel very purposeful being able to share my experiences with autism.
0: I think that always adds like another layer for anyone. And I I reference the majority of my friends when, I, when I'm talking to a parent, because I'll just flat out say like, well, I was talking to uh, another, you know, like an adult who has autism or autistic adults about X, Y, and Z. And this is what they say, because sometimes... Uh, my clients don't have that communication level to say it, so I'd be like, "Well, it it might not be hundred percent, you know, but this is one person that I spoke to that said whatever it is." Mm-hmm. And I think that just helps add another layer onto like what's going on in you know the situation with a client and and a caregiver that I'm talking to. So yeah, keep sharing it. I also
1: love to to advocate that if you are planning to work in uh, the field of autism, not just behavior analysis, but you if you are a behavior analyst who is choosing to work in the field of autism, I really think it's important to surround yourself with autistic people, mm-hmm. young, old, vocal, tall, short, comorbid diagnoses, you know, all of these things because our entire training program is about the science of behavior analysis but then we are we are shooting out BCBAs into a very very niche field and i one time said on a podcast There's nothing special about autism to me. Like I'm not, I'm not tied to autism. It's just, that's what work there is for us. Right.
0: That's what insurance reimburses. Right.
1: And I find that so ironic now, because now it's all about the autism. (laughs) But um, if that's you and you are going to work in the field of autism, then I, I strongly recommend that you don't just read a Temple Grandin book and think that you know about a lived experience learn from people who struggle in different ways and different manners. It's so helpful when we work with our clients to say, this is what you might look like as an adult, or these are some things that an adult that has been, you know, practicing verbal behavior,
0: right? Mm -hmm. I've been,
1: I've been practicing verbal behavior for 10 years professionally. And so I'm much more well-rounded as a speaker than I was as a kid or as a young person. So I just think it's important If you're in the field and you're working with autism, make sure you know autistic people.
0: Right, right. And if you don't know any, find
1: me (laughs) (laughs) because I love to overshare.
0: (laughs) It's a really good point. I know you and I could probably go on and on about the pros and cons with that. And uh, I have a bunch of ideas popping in my head, but let's move on to our entrees. I think we've kept things pretty positive. So Mm -hmm. we need to always show the other side of things. Mm -hmm. So could you let us know or tell us a time that you failed and what you learned from that experience? So I have two really big failures that were
1: definitely like catalysts in my life. The first one, which actually in chronological order didn't happen first, but the one that that really hurts my heart is that I held a demand for four hours and I was punched in the face like every day for two weeks. I was an RBT and my um, supervisors who I didn't know very well, it was a new job. They were hyping me up. Like they were just in it. Like we're holding that demand. We're not reinforcing this. And I felt pride and the poor baby of a child was like looking at me, like, what's wrong with you? So, the one day that it happened, I held the demand for four hours and he did it. And, you know, we're like high fiving. He got it. Mom was happy. Everybody was happy. And the next day he came to school, not school, but an ABA clinic. Uh, he called it school. And when he walked in the door, he said, No, Shelby. Oh, my, my heart just still breaks thinking about it. And I'm like, we're friends. And he's like, no, Shelby. And when I would work with other clients in the room with him, no, Shelby. And oh my gosh. And I, I felt so stupid because I was, I already had a master's degree. I'd already been a teacher and I had been reinforced to do something that there's no way I enjoyed being punched in the face. Like I'm very sensitive, so like, this wasn't a good time for me either, but I was being reinforced. The second time that I failed that that's just sticks on my heart is I wrote a horrible IEP, just embarrassing. And I think I may mention this IEP on every single podcast or speaking engagement I go to, because I feel like, if I ever get any ounce of credibility, somebody's gonna go find this IEP and be like, she's a fraud. Um, <laughs> but it was really terrible. And it was so terrible, I knew it wasn't good. And I went to my director of SPED and we went to the district office and talked with the behavior specialist who was not a BCBA.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No behavior training. She worked herself up from special education teacher to this. And I was just really bad. It was a sexual deviant behavior. And the child was in seventh grade. And I think it was a misunderstanding. And I was the only adult in the room. And I was a little worried. And so when I got back to write it all down, everyone else started making a bigger deal about it. And I kind of fed into the the panic a bit. And I was already not liked at the school. I already knew I wasn't coming back the next year. So that's how, you know, dire it was. And I just submitted it. Like I was so done with them and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what was best. And I just submitted it and it still haunts me. And I pray that that poor kid never has that IEP of sexually deviant behavior used against him because that's the phrasing we used. And if I could go back in time, There are a million other ways I would have handled the the behavior plan and a million other ways I would have written it up in the IEP, but um, it was a really big failure that I knew it was a failure when I turned it in and I just didn't know what to do. With time, I feel like reflecting on those failures has really helped me because every time I turn in a treatment plan, I always think this is a person's medical record. This is a person's paper trail am I a hundred percent sure that I know what I know? Am I a hundred percent sure that I am using recommendations based on my competency and understanding, not the competency and understanding of my superiors? Because sometimes your superiors don't actually know more than you. Those were just two really hard experiences where I wanted to trust the leaders. And I realized after the fact that I had gone wayward. And so in my supervision with my supervisees, I always tell them about this too. Just you fail every day, but hopefully you're not failing the same way. And if you think you're going to fail, just skip that and go talk to someone you trust. Like just bring whatever you have and talk to someone you trust. Um, because I could have called other people and I didn't, I could have done other things and I didn't. And that's just something that really sticks with me. And, and probably is why I'm, hard on myself as a professional is that I just think of like, these are children's lives that I'm, I'm holding in my paperwork. And I don't know that everyone takes that as seriously as they should.
0: I think it's good. What I have found for myself, I'll just speak towards myself, even though I've had this conversation with a lot of different people that if I don't remember all of these types of failures like that first one about holding a demand and being praised and reinforced for holding the demand I yeah I got that I got that a hundred times like in my first few years I mean I was praised for not having any reaction to crying I'm like that's not that's not something to be proud about like right and if I forget that as we move into being more, more you know, like neurodiverse affirming and everything and compassionate and compassionate, yes, that if I forget the failures I've done in the past, it takes weight away from why I'm practicing this way because I have done it. A lot of people are like, well, that's not the best way. Like behavior isn't reduced that quickly, you know, yada, yada. Like you just don't understand. It's like, no, I do because I have done that. I have done those mistakes and yeah, sure. I had a kid tantrum until he fell asleep after yeah, probably three or four hours and I was praised for it. And he, he didn't you know, avoid a demand from me after that, but you bet you better believe it. He also said no rose next time he saw me. And it, it breaks your heart when you're just like, but I thought I was doing right. I thought I was doing the best. Like I thought this was the way. And those types of things are why I almost left the field, you know, after a few years, but then I started remembering the glimmers of hope that weren't in the treatment plans but when i was just doing what i i thought you know like maybe i hadn't been supervised for a little while or um i know at at one point my supervisor was out on maternity leave so was mine in this situation she
1: was out on maternity leave yeah
0: and she was she, you know she was a great a great compass but then when she wasn't there it was like a free for all and I was pretty late into my, in my coursework. And so they were like, oh, she, you know, Rose can figure it out. And I, and I did, and I kind of made up my own stuff, but that's where I saw the glimmer of hope of like, oh, I'm not going to like force things. Uh, and I'm just going to be compassionate without, this was like before it was a common phrase, you know, yeah. I was just like, I just thought I was doing what, what was best. And then hearing people like Dr. Megan DeLeon of like, yeah, this is the way you should be doing it. And that's kind of how I like shifted the way that I practiced. But I think that's what we learn from it of like, yeah, I failed and I'll never forget it. I want to say I don't want to. Of course I want to because it brings up a lot of negative feelings, but then I don't because then I'll forget why I'm doing what I do now.
1: I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I started saying a little bit after the the four-hour demand, I passed my test. And within a month of passing my test, I was fired from the job that this was. Because when I was a BCBA, I went in with this little mantra of, if I wouldn't let you do it to me, I'm not going to let you do it to my client, which Honestly, I've never connected this before, but when I was an RBT, I was under the supervision of the of a brilliant BCBA, and she was my supervising BCBA through all of my practicum. It was amazing, and then I moved away and got another RBT job uh, because I was done with my coursework, and so that's when I worked at the company and whatnot, and she was a special education teacher. I was a special education teacher, but I worked in-home. And we really had this teacher mentality of like, they're my kids. It's my responsibility that nothing bad happens to them. I'm taking on a lot with a classroom and they start to feel like, you know, they're your responsibility. Well, as an RBT with my first supervisor, we, we had the sense of that they're her. And so she was like a little mother duckling and she never let any, I mean, we did great work with the clients and I'm very proud of that work. But then when I moved to this other place and the teacher side was, was not there, I had to listen to other people tell me what to do. They didn't feel like my clients. And I'm just kind of putting it together that the minute I passed my exam, I was kind of like set free a bit. And I went back into teacher mode of like every client on my caseload is my kid would I want my kid to be held down? Would I want my kid to be force fed food? Would I want my kid to X, Y, Z? Would I want somebody to put a spit cloth over my kid? No, not me or my kid. Right. And so I always, you know, felt post BCBA, I felt very strongly. And I felt like I had that, the ability to advocate, but as an RBT, Oh my gosh, I just, it's just like coming back to me of how painful it is because you don't, you're not making the rules. You're not the boss. Right. And so for RBTs that are listening, I hope that you don't have that frame of reference. They are yours. They are your clients. You are responsible for them. Would you want these things happening to your kid or you? And I've even asked the parents, I had a parent that put their hand over their kid's mouth all the time. I said, what would you do if I put my hand over your mouth? And she said, I would bite you just so quickly. And I just, I didn't even reply. I just sat there and she was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, "Mm -hmm, I'd bite you too. "Mm -hmm." And so all that to say, I really believe that we're compassionate, that people are compassionate, that people have big hearts, that people innately know what a scent is because we know how to use the scent with animals. Most mm-hmm. of us, we know how to use a scent in places where we don't speak the same language. We know how to use a scent with babies. These elements are all things that we can remind everyone to use and just bring it back to just being a human. Yeah, I'm autistic, but no one wants to be held down. And if they do want to be held down, maybe they're like me holding the demand, they were being reinforced. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't even something that they were were consciously assenting to. It's pretty yucky, and so that's a big lesson and kind of a revelation that I'm having, like in real time, that once I became a BCBA, my teacher stayed on, and I think that that has been a really strong, what would you call it? It's um, not a backbone, but it's like a pillar of
0: yeah, like a guiding light to yeah, like what you, yeah. how you practice now.
1: And good teachers, loving teachers, compassionate teachers, we all know them. We all had them. If you think of how they treated the kids in their class and you and everybody else, then you can quickly say, uh, am I treating my clients like this? Whether they can talk or not, whether they can feed themselves or not, feeding tube or not, scream or not. And that's that's a big lesson for me and kind of a maybe a message. Keep your teacher hat on. Whatever kind of teacher you are, um, keep your teacher hat on and, and stay compassionate with your clients. And their families.
0: Well, keep the thought of like I don't want to say ownership because you don't own your kids, but you know, look at them how you would look at if you had a child yourself. Or I mean, I don't have children, so maybe like a pet. I mean, <laughs> no,
1: but even like even think of this. This is I was explaining this to my husband the other day after something happened at work, and I I said. What would you do if you walked in and you saw two people bigger than me restraining me and I'm screaming and crying and trying to get out? That would be traumatizing.
0: Think about them as someone that you love. Yeah, we'll yes. say that. Think of them as yes. someone that you love. Yeah. And if
1: you walked in a room and someone was doing that to your husband, you would have an immediate gut reaction. You'd likely be so angry. You might even intervene, get your hands off of the. And oh, I'd be I throwing that, hands. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and my husband's like 6'8", 220. And he's not really 220, but leave that yeah. in, Alan. <laughs> he wants to be 220. Um, <laughs> and when I explain it like that, everybody's like, oh, and I feel like we've been desensitized. You know, so keep that compassionate heart, keep that loving heart. And if all else fails, think of what if this exact thing was happening to me or my loved one with no context? Because the context doesn't matter when someone's holding you down in a corner. Yeah. In in a lot of cases. Now, this is not clinical advice. And there are safe ways <laughs> to transport people. And there are safe ways to right. restrain people. Although I do promote blocking instead of restraint. Just keep that in mind as a practitioner.
0: Perfect. What is something people seem to misunderstand about you or are generally surprised to find out about you?
1: I'm more autistic in person and maybe I should air quote that but I've loved the internet since I was 10 years old. Like I'm in I'm in AOL chat rooms, I'm Yahoo yep. chat rooms, mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm doing everything. I've always loved the internet, I've always loved computers. Communicating through a computer is so comfortable to me and it has been since I got a computer. And so a majority of my relationships in my whole life are contained through the internet. I mean, even my husband and I, I message. Like, I make a joke that we started texting in 2011 and we've never stopped. Like, it's like one ongoing conversation. And so, when people meet me in real life, I think that there is some expectation of the Shelby that they see on the internet just being immediately warm to them. And that isn't my personality in real life. And so, it's it is my personality when I'm comfortable. Right. But just a person off the street and they catch me in a in a context where we don't get an official greeting, people are usually pretty shocked at the way that I may respond. A great example is that I met you in real life at what conference was that? APBA mm-hmm. in Seattle. And there was a really fun dance party. And everyone is dancing. I mean, lots of people are dancing. I like to dance. I love music. My husband's a DJ and everybody's like, Shelby, get on the dance floor. No way. (laughs) No way. There's no amount of peer pressure that can get me on a dance floor at a conference. And so I actually rearranged the furniture and moved a table to the side of the dance floor so I could be close to you guys. That's what I'm like in real life. Like if you see me at a concert or an event, I'm typically on the edge enjoying Mm -hmm. myself, but it doesn't look like maybe what I look like if I'm just in my bedroom talking on my phone. So I think that that's a, a misunderstanding that happens a lot more frequently in, um, somebody who follows me on the internet and then they see me Mm -hmm. in real life. They want me to be, uh, spontaneous and I'm not, I'm pretty rote. I'm pretty, I'm pretty ritualized. So, you know, that's one thing. But another interesting thing that has to, I'm going to tie it into self-concept is people say, I look the same. Like you look the same on on mm-hmm. Instagram and in real life. And at first I didn't really know how to take that because I'm not good at social cues. So I like started asking around. I'm like, so like people are cuter on Instagram and I'm cute <laughs> in real life or people are uglier on Instagram and I'm <laughs> uglier in real life. Like my husband's like, stop. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that. It's just like, you know you just look the same um and mm-hmm. so that's that's something that has been funny in the last couple of years is that they'll say like you look the same and i'm like duh of course i do uh but i also think there's some of that autism social awareness of there are some people that have the ability to come across to an audience in a certain way mm-hmm. or they have the forethought to look a certain way or Edit photos. They want to be skinnier. They want to be taller. They want to be this. Those things don't go on in my brain. So mm-hmm. I think that helps me come across authentically over the Authentic, internet. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah.
1: Randomly, I also get that I'm taller in person than I seem online, <laughs> uh, which is I'm five six, not that tall, but I do normally wear platform shoes, so it's probably five eight, eight five nine. So maybe that is tall. So those are the things that people seem to get surprised. And as I'm even saying this and like watching your faces, I'm answering, I'm like, this is so funny because I'm not saying people misunderstand, you know, my Mm -hmm. heart, they don't misunderstand my mission. They don't understand, misunderstand my love. They don't, these really complex things that they probably do misunderstand. Um, but mine are like very literal. They think I'm taller. They think that I look the same and they are expecting me to be spontaneous and a bit more wild, like a bit more party girl. I think it's the red lipstick, honestly. Yeah. The red lipstick gets people a different vibe.
0: I mean, I'm mostly laughing because I mean you have a bigger platform that I do, but a lot of people or the majority of people that know me know me from Instagram. And I do get that I am to have the same mannerisms and act the same way in person than I do on Instagram, which I'm the same thing, like, well, yeah, I mean, I I can't, like, put on new mannerisms, but the second layer of that is once you get to know me, and even though I brought this, I often say, like, I brought this on myself. I created a platform that a lot of people follow, but then when they come up to me, I'm just like, uh, hello, like, <laughs> you know me, and they're like, yeah, I know you, and I'm like, why? <laughs> you know and so yeah I think they expect me to be like hi I'm Rosie like hi hi like oh so nice and I'm just like I am grateful I'll always be grateful and appreciative of anyone that comes up and I and I will encourage people but it will forever throw me off because I in my head I still am a nobody you know like I'm just little rose that that was quiet when she was growing up and shy and all of that stuff. So it's like, it's weird. But then once you get to know me, I am very animated. Like my reels are really me. That's how I act once you get to know me. So I really identify
1: with this because I sometimes joke that my Instagram followers know me better than my family. Mm -hmm. Because Instagram is typically mask off. And, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm glad you brought this up. And I know we're kind of going off of script, but I think this is important, at least for me to process is that yeah. um, masking as a professional is hard. There's a, this beautiful place like Instagram where my mentality has always been like mask off. This is the real Shelby. Mm-hmm. And so having that like mindset and then got my PhD, then I got some some corporation clients and then, mm-hmm. and then my husband's business blows. And then it's like, oh, now you're somebody with a responsibility to uphold a certain level of professionalism. Right. And I'm like, on Instagram, <laughs> like it's my one place to be myself. And so I've had people reach out that have literally said like, your Instagram's kind of all over the place. I can help you niche market. I can help you X, Y, Z. And I'm like, no. Nah. Yeah. Not, not really for me. I'm, I'm on a money kick right now. So I'll be talking about that for a couple months and then I'm going to get on something else. And, you know, it's just really interesting that we can find ourselves like that is the real me. I'm not a niche person.
0: I just, no,
1: I'm a hyper-focused maniac. Um, and I like that about myself. That's fun. Uh, but I'm not so fun to take on the dance floor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) no I I like and I like that you you know the niching down I think like Elise Myers talks about that too uh she can have the you know the luxury of of not niching down because she is such a big person now Mm -hmm. um but I think I think it can be true for anyone because no one is one thing you know like that you could I enjoy traveling and you know, I could have a travel Instagram, but also like, I just won't log in, you know, I yeah. I log into yeah. one account. Um, I do help leaps account now. And then I have a personal account and I, I log into my personal account maybe like once every couple of weeks, The yeah. really the only time I, I use that was when I was fostering more like frequently and I'd post uh-huh. pictures with them, but and now I just put that on my like regular my heats, yeah. you know it's like that's just, yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get behavior analysis. you're gonna get travel, you're gonna get food. you're gonna I just brought an espresso maker, so I'm I gonna be posted healthy
1: like i I really like that and I think about reinforcement and like reinforcing your espresso, reinforcing your your uh, raccoon saga. Oh like, God, I'm raccoons. still hoping that I have a raccoon in my backyard. I just hope it doesn't get in my attic. But like, I really want to see one because you saw one and it was so cool. And I saw a fox and I'm like, if there was a fox, maybe I can get a raccoon. Uh, you know, so like, I love sharing. Before the blue check, I my bio used to say Instagram overshare. But the blue check made me change some things um, around like where your name is and da, da, da. So someday I'll have an internet overshare again. But I think that's part of our job too as behavior analysts is reinforcing a person. This is my tagline. This is my ABA, my, my SD store tagline. We influence culture by what we reinforce. Mm-hmm. I don't want my RBTs to feel like they can't be my Instagram friend or they can't follow me on Instagram because we work together. I'm a person and you're a person and we're all people and we're all figuring it out. And if you want privacy, great. But if you don't, that's okay. And I just really like your platform and kind of the the circle of of uh, behavior analysts that are kind of rising to the top as far mm-hmm. as vocally not really academically like we're not we're not all publishing right. these big articles together but we're we're being more and more vocal and we're being we're we're disrupting the status quo and we're disrupting the field and we're we're really asking hard questions and looking at people who have had a strong grasp on the field and kind of made everything go their way. We're kind of picking at them. We're kind of poking the bear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of the power in that is when you go to our pages or when you listen to this interview or when you do whatever, it's like, no, we're just real people with real failures, with real hearts, with real careers, with real families. And we really want to make a difference. I'm like getting chills saying it, but, um, influences is such a powerful thing that, once you get it, you have a responsibility. And I feel like part of the responsibility is showing up as my real self, even, you know, on days when my stomach hurts or when, you know, my kids are driving me crazy or you have a raccoon in your attic, (laughs) you know, so just, just all together and, and kind of wrapping that up with
0: self-concept. All right. So we are now at our dessert. And so I have two desserts for us. Our first one is what is the best compliment you've ever received? on my wedding day, my husband and
1: I went to Italy. I was teaching in Italy and we canceled our wedding and got married there. No family, no friends, no nothing. Found a photographer there. It was amazing. And, and while we were taking our wedding pictures, he's like looking in my eyes and we're being all romantic. And she's like, what's your favorite thing about Shelby? I'm like thinking in my head, you know, my eyes, my, my humor, my body, like, I don't know, just, And he's like, so stern, so meaningful. He's like, she's so stable. And as it came out of his mouth, I just bust out laughing. I'm like, what? And he's like, he's like, you really are. And so the photographer laughs and she's like, that's a hell of a compliment. And everybody laughs and whatever. And like, I'm like, stay, like, I did not even know you liked that about me. And he's like, no, you are steady. You've had the same email address since the ninth grade. (laughs) You don't change. Like I have a cup and I have the same cup. I don't have two cups. I have one cup. I have one hairstyle of red glasses. Like I have whatever. And so in my answers, you know, preparing for this, I put the RBTs that come back and they tell me stories. And those are all my favorite. But that one comment that he said, you know, you're so steady has really been one of the things that has helped me with my self-concept and under like looking at my rigidity from a positive. And so my steadiness, my rigidity, my, my roteness sometimes has been a real fantastic thing in my life. And so the compliments that I receive from my supervisees are so special. And, and anytime somebody comes back and they're like, you taught me this, or, you know, you're, you were the best supervisor, or I tell them you've got to call Shelby I love those, but they all kind of stem from the same place. And that is that I'm, I'm really pretty much the same. I don't change a whole lot as I grow. And as I learn, I I add that to my foundation. And I think that all of those things build up on, on what's my favorite Like those are all my favorite compliments in a thematic category is, is, um, looking at something that for part of my life, people were kind of ugly about or said not so nice things about being rigid and being the same and doing the same things. And when it was labeled as a compliment, it was like, wow. And I feel like I opened up a part of my life that was like, this is a good thing helps me be a teacher, helps me be a supervisor, helps me parent train, helps me be CBA. People know where I'm at. I've had the same phone number since high school, like all of these things. And so I think that that is really like the best area of compliment because as an autistic person, it can be um, really overwhelming to read about how rigid we are. It can be really overwhelming to hear everybody talk about, you know, a stacking and a organizing and lining up and and I read it all the time at work. And so just reframing that has as just a really nice compliment. I I like practical compliments.
0: That's really funny that he said that like on your wedding.
1: (laughs) And he never said it to me before. Like that wasn't something that he's always like that Shelby. She is steady.
0: But in that frame I was like, yeah, I am. So our second dessert is what is your favorite thing about what you do?
1: the literal science. I love the science. I use it everywhere. I think about it all the time. I read books about it. I read books that aren't about it. And I think about it inside of the book. Someone described, and I, there's a word for it that I can't remember, but someone described behavior analysis to me, um, like gravity. You can argue, a. Uh, gravity until you're blue in the face but if you drop a brick off the side of the building we're calling it gravity and if you reinforce someone definitionally it's reinforcement when you punish someone Mm -hmm. definitionally it's punishment Um, Mm -hmm. and so the science has lit up life to me in a way that i feel like i understand things better i operate Mm -hmm. better I'm more comfortable and confident because I understand that when somebody's sassy to me or says something mean that it's not really about me or that this has gotten a reaction before or maybe maybe they just need a little extra attention today. And so out of everything that I do and all the fun projects, like I think I will work as a behaviorist forever. Um and and if I ever do something creative uh, which I do like creative stuff, but it will be in a bubble of behavior analysis because it's just the most interesting thing, and I love operant conditioning and animals and all of the all of the behaviors I love. But <laughs> it's just it's really about the science, and I feel so comfortable and confident going into people's lives and and helping them with their children and helping them with their nighttime routines and helping them with their dinner and their birthday parties. Uh, whatever, whatever is kind of a a hard spot in their life. I know that if I can just figure out the science behind it, that we can change it, and I can offer an explanation, and we can make some changes. And to me, there's very few other jobs. Um, maybe engineers probably feel this way, or mm-hmm. or biologists, you know, other people who work in the sciences. But there's just a confidence behind it of um, this is this, and these definitions mm-hmm. are law. And I, I just really respect it and and enjoy that. Like that is a highly preferred thing for me.
0: So um, yeah. It's like having that, how that foundation yeah. be stable. It's reinforcement. Reinforcement is reinforcement. It's reinforcement. And you know, it's not going to change. And
1: just because you reward me doesn't mean I'm reinforced. That's the other Mm -hmm. part that I love about it is that people will say, well, I, I did this. Did the behavior change? No. Okay. (laughs) Well, then it wasn't reinforcement. Right. Or maybe it was punishment, you know, those, those things. So I love coming at it from that view. And I I do, I think that helps burnout. I think that helps enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. It helps not take things so personally to me, at least, and to my clients. So yeah, by far, my favorite Mm -hmm. thing is the actual science.
0: Okay, we are at our nightcap. And I would be remiss if I didn't give you the space to talk about your first conference presentation.
1: Yes. Okay. I'm I'm beyond excited. I am a PhD, but I have never done a conference presentation because I um rebelled against the academic institution as a whole, when I learned that you have to pay your own way and that all of these things are paid for. And all you know, there was just certain things that I didn't have access to because I was very poor Mm
0: -hmm. and a single
1: mother and a young mother. I mean, I started my PhD when I was 25 Mm -hmm. and my daughter was seven or eight. So that's just been something that's, that I've stood on. Well, I've been wanting to present. I've been wanting to do things. I feel more confident. There's less financial barriers. And so then I realized, I don't know how. And I text uh, a good friend, Dr. Megan Kirby, and she and Dr. Shane Spiker wrote humble behaviorism. Mm -hmm. It's a funny name, but it's basically part two to humble behaviorism. And I love that, that article, read it if you haven't. Um, And I text her and I'm like, Hey, this is really stupid, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to present somewhere. I don't work for a university. I don't, and so she kind of coached me through it. Well, in the middle of that, um, I was on a chat GPT kick and me and my husband are super tech nerds. And the minute chat GPT was open to the public, we immediately get on. And we spend ungodly amounts of time on chat GPT in the first days because it was like Mm -hmm. so fascinating and I love novel stuff. And so as I'm working with it, I'm like, Wait, I think this could help me, like me as a human. Mm -hmm. And so I started using it as a tool, Mm -hmm. as a communication device. Like, this is what I wanna say, but I wanna say it in 300 words with two learning objectives. And that was really a a hard part for me. And so um, I wrote an entire presentation on ChatGPT using ChatGPT, submitted it, and got accepted. Like, my first one, I'm like, literally so thrilled. I'm, I'm beyond thrilled. And as I was doing it, I'm like, this is revolutionary for people like me, Mm -hmm. because I have the knowledge in my head, but I don't have some of the skills that it requires the processes that you have to go into to be a big name in ABA. There are a lot of red tape there are a lot of people making it harder than it has to be. There are mm-hmm. a lot of gates closing. And so I had this tool that I was able to use. And I thought, man, I don't know if they'll be interested. But like if Weeba's interested in ChatGPT, like <laughs> I'm the girl for it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I got the email that they accepted it. And not mm-hmm. only did they accept it, like I have like a prime time slot. Wow. I have like a 1045 room of 300 people, which I know at conferences, they give you all rooms, but you know, eight o'clock slots are the keynote and the five o'clock slots, less people come. So we kind of all know that. So I'm really, really excited. And I think that AI is scary. And I think AI is dangerous. And I think AI is all the things that the internet is as well. I love the internet Mm -hmm. and I love AI. And so (laughs) my goal with my first presentation, and then I hope, you know, in my dissemination efforts, I can get in front of the scary stuff, get in front of all of the what ifs Mm -hmm. and show, um, shine a light on a tool that as an autistic person, it's been Mm life-changing, but you don't have to be autistic. You're a behavior analyst and you're writing a task analysis for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mm-hmm. That has taken me an hour before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: ChatGPT can do it in like five seconds. I'm really excited about one, how it can revolutionize just the, the actual analytic part
0: mm-hmm.
1: of behavior analysis because I'm working right now with there's ways that you can insert raw data Mm -hmm. And it can produce progress reports. Mm. And I'm thinking like, gosh, how much time do we spend on that? Especially if you work somewhere where you have to have monthly progress reports turned in, or, um, you know, if you're a teacher and you have six week to nine week progress reports, you've got all this data that you've got to synthesize. And for me, that's just really difficult. And so I really see it as a time saver, as a burnout saver, as a accommodation for, people like me who need the help. I know what I want to say, but I don't know how to say it sometimes in written format that that somebody else is asking for, Mm -hmm. like academic format. And so I am just, I hope you can hear my voice. I'm super excited. If you don't (laughs) attend live, there's a recording and I really hope that I'm able to like record it and take some of it and share it. And I hope to learn some. I hope that there's people Mm -hmm. that reach out and say like, did you know it can do this? Did you know it can do this? And and my presentation is going to be, it's groundbreaking to me, you yeah. know, but in, in the field of behavior analysis, we're, we're just right on the cutting edge of AI. I think there's been, you know, there's one person that I know that has talked about it on a podcast before, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know any other large scale conference, academic backed places that are entertaining it, uh, because it's so new. We don't have a lot of data on it. We don't, we don't have a lot of research on it. And so it's, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff. So I'm just really excited to use my teacher brain and help anyone who's interested in getting this kind of assistant. It's a really neat, assistance that i think in 20 years it'll be like how did we live without that what? <laughs> we used to actually write those mm-hmm. um there and i think that there are some things that people will use it for that are that are bad right and there'll be yeah. ethical dilemmas left and right but we've got ethical dilemmas on water bottles and you know whatever so right we're not going to escape that so if you're listening and you are scared of ai or you feel like a little um nervous about the future Take an open minded approach. We're at the very beginning. This is like when the internet was out.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: always, you know, I've, like I said, I love the internet. I always wish that I was there. Like when the internet came, I wish I would have been on it. So it's so exciting. And that's how I feel about AI. And there's more than just Chat GPT, but because in the media chat gpt is like the microsoft you know it's like the big name the 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 phrase that people know i'm going to focus on that one and then mention some other ones and hopefully work with some other ones too but right now i'm focusing on chat gpt and i'm i'm super excited
0: so jazzed
1: <laughs> i'm super jazzed i'm telling you like it's it'll be my first presentation and i'll probably be so nervous and i've already been thinking like what the heck am i going to wear but one thing's for sure is that I'm excited about it and I will be excited about it on that day. And those, thankfully, are the two things that I care about. If I'm going to present <laughs> on something, I want it to be something that I'm like right. super jazzed about so that people aren't falling asleep. So yeah. thank you for giving me the space to talk about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely excited to see where it goes in our field and how it can help people. And we are not even scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's exciting to be on the front lines of something this disruptive, if you will, air quotes, disruptive, hopefully in a good way, disruptive.
0: When you brought it up the first time in our little professional group, it received mixed messages on things like that. I like to come from a place of curiosity because I don't know. I remember pre-internet and you know now we're in post-internet or not post but in internet. Yeah. (laughs) We are in internet. We're in the internet right now as we talk. And so it's just it's just interesting because it's like you could try to deny these types of advancements, just like how putting music on TV killed the radio, and then you put music on. Spotify and that's kill, you know. So it just keeps on going. It's like, well, you got to kind of get with the times. So I don't know enough, but I'm curious. Maybe after you present cuz no spoilers, after you present, you know, down the line we could have you come on again and talk more about it because cuz I forgot to mention this before, I think at the top of the podcast I had said you gave me a list of descriptors. Uh And so I plugged those in to chat GPT and said, write a bio. First, it wrote a page essay bio and I said, make it concise. And then it was too concise. So then I said, make it two paragraphs. And so then it made it two paragraphs and then um, I hadn't put your name. So then I said, add in Shelby or... Um, she, her pronouns, and then that's the one. So anyone, if you read the show description, that Shelby's bio written by AI. When I saw it in my email, I'm like, Rosie, you're speaking my love language. Like, I love
1: that, that you did that. And just explaining how you did it, it's like, it's not right on the first time. It's, you gotta mm-hmm. put a little into it and it's not all knowing, but it, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. It's really cool.
0: So I would love to come back and talk about it I think that's the important part is people are trying to use it as like you plug it in and then you just copy the first thing and spit it out. And that's what Shelby's saying of like, that would be unethical. Yes. But if it helps reduce the time that it's taking you to do something... Then you read it. It's quicker for you to read it and edit it and modify it than it is for you to just write it off the top of your head. I struggle with starting things. Once I'm started, I'm good. I can edit anything, all of that. But it's like that actual starting it, I will stare. Any presentation, it takes me forever because... That first step, I'm just like, I don't know. (laughs) I think that that is part
1: of the reason that I gravitated towards it, and part of the reason that I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to get this out, is because that's that's the reason I never I've never like presented or done anything Mm -hmm. on my own. Like I was I was boycotting it in college, but then I was like, I really (laughs) want to be a part of this, and I don't know how. And so what I would typically do is wait till the last minute, then be frantic Mm -hmm. and just brain you know just pour everything on and yeah. edit it and it that's just very stressful using it i even was able to say like uh how many words should a learning objective be mm-hmm. and i have a book about learning objectives on my desk and so when it said it i went and referenced it because you know i'm still in the phases of like trying things out yeah, and i'm like try it out. yeah i was able to put in some things and then say Write up my learning objectives in 50 words or less. Well, that was the issue with presenting or submitting presentations before, is going from my 400 page paper (laughs) to a 50 word learning objective is just almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you should have seen me in my dissertation trying to get the research questions, it felt impossible. So I'm really, really hopeful that we can use it in a way that's beneficial and spread the message that you shouldn't copy and paste your client's information and say, write a report. Those are the bad ways people are going to use it. That's
0: already happening.
1: Most of the things that people are worried about, you can do them in other ways. Um, This is just, to me, a more critical thinking tool, a more practical tool. So I'm very excited about it.
0: So you're presenting at WEBA, the Women in Behavior Analysis And my presentation is called
1: The Future of Behavior Analysis Using Chat GPT to Revolutionize Intervention and Support.
0: Other than that, where can listeners find more about you, uh, your dissemination efforts? The best place to
1: find me is on Instagram and it is at D-R-S-H-E-L-B-Y-D-O-R-S-E-Y. So at Dr. Shelby Dorsey. And then, um, we didn't get to chat a lot about it, but I have a really, really fun dissemination project going called the SD store. And you can find that at www.thesd.store or on Instagram at the SD.store. And, um, as my name, Shelby Dorsey, um, and discriminative stimulus. My whole goal is to become um, a cue for reinforcement, uh, both in branding in in my own business, and then break down some stigmas uh, that people have long held against ABA. And so you can find me sharing, you know, in, in those spaces. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Come follow me. Tell me you heard me here. Uh, I love internet friends. And if you do see me at a conference, do say hello. I love meeting people at conferences. But if you just randomly see me at a gas station, I'm going to have my resting autism face on. If you don't speak to me, I'm not going to see you. So that's un- <laughs> that's unfortunate. But <laughs>
0: yes, I mean, as always, please come up and say hi to us. We might just not be what you might think. <laughs> We're better. We're better than you think. We're We are full of love. I thought you were gonna say we're better than you, and I'd be like, "Whoa, whoa, we took a no. ton here."
1: <laughs> Gosh, no, we're 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 very likely not better than you. Maybe we just like the internet more. Yeah, that's what it is. I do want to say while while we're on the podcast that meeting you in person, you have a very sweet personality, and it does show on Instagram. Oh, but you're, you're just very kind and very, um, even like, a kindness in like a methodical way, like a very caring way. So I think that it's interesting because it's something that you don't get to see on your Instagram because you're usually by yourself, mm-hmm. but in person, when we met, you were so considerate, you know, airport rides and Uber rides and backs hurt and luggage and all of those <laughs> conference things. So I just, I really appreciate yeah. you. And I feel so honored to be on your podcast. It's been so fun.
0: Thank you. That means a lot. I do enjoy compliments, even though I try to deflect. <laughs> and it was really nice meeting you also. I'm glad that I came across as kind in a methodical way. I'm going to write that down.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's if, if you had a self uh, concept survey, that's what I would write. And I love to explain things, but like a methodical way is in like, it's you're not kind by accident. You, you are being very, I have a be mindful shirt on right mm-hmm. now. You you seem very mindful and very aware of what you're putting out into the world. Yes. It's a really lovely skill. And and I like to be around people who are mindful because we're all like working towards a purpose. It's not just like, Oh, I got here by nothing. It's mm-hmm. like, no, this is really important to me. And I'm, I'm going forward with something with an idea.
0: I'm, I'm glad that you added, I added that. Cause that makes a lot more, more sense, more context. Cause like, cause it's true. Like that is how I try to act. I try, it is very, not effortful, but it is a very intentional, it is, it is very intentional behaviors that I, that I do to be kind and be positive and all of that. So thank you.
1: And the best version of yourself, I think, you know, that's, Something we're we're not perfect, but we can all try to be the best version of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And so it's refreshing when you find somebody, and it's like, you know what? They're being the best version of themselves. So that's that's like really fun.
0: And you're kind too. You drove me to the airport
1: at night. I refused to let you get an Uber. I (laughs) was aggressive. That is something about me. I am kind of aggressive in person. Aggressively kind. (laughs) Aggressively kind. Like I'm gonna take you to the airport. Uh, You're not gonna get an Uber when I have this rental car.
0: But honestly, honestly, accepting a ride for someone being so aggressively kind, I would only really do that with someone who is autistic in the way that you are because I knew it wasn't a, oh, well, I feel obligated to bring her because you're just like, no, like, I'm going to bring you like point blank. There's no like alternative motive or then I'm going to be resentful that now I'm stuck in traffic or anything. So I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. That, I like the way that you said that too, because that is something, if this part makes it, it's like
1: what people misunderstand. This is actually the opposite. It's like what I hope people understand is like, I'm, I can be blunt or super direct. And it's like, because the, the social thing isn't there and it's like yeah. very practical. So yeah. that's, that's fun. That's funny. I I love that we recapped on that.
0: No, this is going to stay because, because I feel the same, like with Madi too, like a compliment from her holds more weight because I know she's not just saying it to gas me up for like an ulterior motive, you know, she's saying it true, like truly. So I, I sometimes say it's the gift
1: of autism. One time I went six weeks without lying and I like told everybody in my family at work, like I'm not exaggerating, I'm not lying. And at one point my sister was like, could you just go back? please you're killing the vibe every day you know it was just a fun little experiment to yeah. not exaggerate and then I was like oh gosh this is like my real thoughts and it was great but there is like a little autism trait that we really bond to truth which is probably also why I love the the science over the people because I
0: can find the truth in the science always thank you for sharing a bite with us of course If you aren't already following Shelby um, and the SD store, all the links are going to be in the show notes. Also on my website, I'm going to put a ton of links to like the self-concept survey. Um, I think you referenced a few other things. As always, you can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website rosiebx.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please help my dissemination efforts by reviewing and sharing this podcast. It's free and it helps others find and enjoy the podcast. Until our next meal. Bye! Bye.